When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Stupidity, home of the greatest media mind ever to walk the planet. Okay, so here's the deal. He's a true icon in every sense of the word. He's loved and feared more than any being to grace this planet. There's two guys, is it? Hey, a man with a voice that sounds like Barry White and Beyonce had a Jewish baby. God himself would pay $39.99 for a cameo. Fact of the matter is, you are about to embark on a transcendent experience that can only be described as psychological nudity. This is Stu Goss, and this is Stupidity. Here we go, Jim. Tony! Welcome into another episode of Stupidity, the biggest podcast in the world, thanks to you. Please subscribe, rate and review, unsubscribe, resubscribe, re-rate, re-review. By doing that, you have made us the biggest podcast in the world. We are presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today. Use code STU for a special offer when you sign up. That's code STU only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Mike Golick Sr. going to join us in just a minute. Jim Sony Sonefeld, the drummer uh, for Hootie and the Blowfish, a band that at the time in the 90s, 95, 96 in that area, was the biggest band in the United States of America. Golick and Sony, of course, are friends, Billy. So Golick's going to join us to speak with his friends. <laughs> I'm starting to learn, Stugatz, the more we yeah. do these. Golick is friends with absolutely everybody. <laughs> I know. Everybody <laughs> we come across, Golick is friends with or they know Golick. Golick is like a thousand. It seems exhausting to have as many friends as Mike Golick has, I think. It's why he doesn't keep any of their numbers. <laughs> wow. You think that's what it is? He doesn't actually want to talk to any of his friends. So he when I see you, I'll see you. <laughs> you agree? <laughs> I mean, I'm starting to think. I'm going back through the Rolodex of, of names. I remember him saying that he had, and the numbers yeah. he chooses to keep are just it's so weird. weird. It's so weird. to the ones he could have, yeah. I know. Well, what are some of the ones that he had? Do you remember? <laughs> like, I mean, it's all like 
old defensive tackles from like rival teams and stuff. Right, it's those guys in Jaws. That's yeah, about it. <laughs> right. I go, Mike, did you get his Kenny Chesney? He's like, no, I don't think so. Him and Ches, you know, Kenny Chesney's like one of his best friends. And Mike is an honest guy, so we know this about Mike. I am not, he is, okay? He's an honest man. Yeah. I have asked Mike for Kenny's number 15 times. When Mike says he doesn't have Kenny's number, who's one of his best friends, he does not have Kenny's number. Well, so he taught us something a couple months back. I think we were doing God Bless Football or one of them. And he was telling us how, because at one time you did have Kenny's number. And Kenny just, I guess, every year, two years or whatever, just gets a new number to kind of like purge out people like you that he doesn't want calling him and bothering yes. him. Thank and you. I was I was telling someone the other day, I'm like, if I won the lotto, I think I would do that exact same thing. Right. Like I would just cut out like almost all of my phone numbers from my Rolodex. <laughs> and then I just casually dropped in like. Yeah, you know, Kenny Chesney does that. And then the people that I was with are like, you asshole. Like, why are you, like, you're just saying this like you're friends with Kenny Chesney. I'm like, no, 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 I, I never had it. It's just right. a story my colleague told us. If you won the lottery, would that be the last day me and Lebitor would ever see you? I mean. <laughs> um, wow. What day is it? <laughs> what do you mean what day? Well, what want... day of the week it is. Maybe I would finish out the week, you know. Oh, that's nice of you. Let's yeah, say like, you wanted... if I went on a Wednesday, then maybe you see me Thursday, Friday. That's what it. if you wanted on a Monday, though? Oh, wow. Monday? Hmm. Yeah, four days to go. <laughs> yeah, that's four days a long time. It's like, I'll never get a hold of you again. <laughs> I can barely get a hold of you now. Yeah, you know. Stupidity. Well, you know. <laughs> I'm with you, by the way. I win the lottery. Everyone's going to, everyone is cut out of my life. Everyone. I, I, I'll, I'll, honestly, I'll save like, Eh, like 20 numbers maybe but then after that it's like i need to be careful because the thing is this right if you win the lottery everyone's gonna especially if they know everyone's everyone wants something yes everyone wants something everyone's coming for you yes yeah. i would keep my wife's number probably my kids definitely and greenies <laughs> maybe van, <laughs> maybe van Pelt. <laughs> And Golik. You'd still be angling to do something with Golik. Yes, of course. Always Golik. Golik's yeah, number. Yes, always. Uh, speaking of Golik, let's get to uh, let's get to Golik Senior and his great friend whose number he doesn't have, Jim Sony Zonefeld. Stu Gatz here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So, what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. I have been enjoying ice-cold Miller Lights for as long as I can remember. In fact, I enjoyed some over the weekend. As the Knicks beat the Sixers in advance of the second round, me and my friends, we sat around, we celebrated. With ice-cold Miller Lights, what did we do? We made fun of Joel Embiid. Ah, oh, I love it, the Knicks. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Jim, when's the last time you've seen Mike Golding? Uh... At our golf tournament, yeah, I guess I would say so. We had the two off COVID years, so right. probably three years ago at the minimum, probably three to five, because yeah. I don't really know how time works exactly. But yeah, it, it was. It was right before the uh, there. Were, I can't remember the one where it rained like crazy. I think that was about four of them ago. I don't think it was that one. I think it was the one right before, right before COVID. And still, as I say, one of the great golf events as long as you don't take golf too seriously because for those that love golf it's a seven hour round full of nothing but eating and drinking i am hammered by the third hole and i have the best time i mean the best time at that tournament because i don't take a lot seriously but for those who who want the whole golf experience it's a tough one man because there's a ton of fans in there and it is just you're held up you're stopped you know, you go sign autographs, but it is it is an absolute ball. I love it. You do you need to come back because we need your opinion on our new format, which we tested just a month and a half ago, which was split rounds. Half the group plays Sunday, half plays Monday. Minimal audiences on the field, and you get about a four and a half hour round. It's almost nearly boring, but it's much more functional. So when the parties come at night, you're not feeling like you're dragging yourself into them. You're actually have a little energy. All right. So let me ask you about that because I did that one time of Ron Jaworski has a, a, had a tournament in Atlantic city and they changed the format. So, and I couldn't make it this year because it was a week before Sydney's wedding, uh, my daughter's wedding. So my wife would have cut off the, you know what, if I tried to ditch town a week before, you know, <laughs> finishing that up, but you tried. So, but I did. So, so you, you golf, did you golf Sunday, Monday? Uh, only, so we, let's say we had uh, 38 to 40 groups right. that we shoved into the previously Monday round. Right. Now we have 20 groups Sunday, 20 Monday. You know ahead of time when you go yeah, out. Yeah. You don't even have to get there uh, uh, Sunday if you can't or not necessarily right. want to because the concert is still monday night so exactly right um yeah it's like i mean 20 20 at the most teams on a golf course that's smooth smooth sailing. oh that i listen compared to what it normally is that would feel like smooth sailing oh i look forward it does not improve your golf at all. It does not improve your golf at all. Well, who cares about improving it? Yeah, golf? like, like I said, it, it's not going to change the way I play. I have a, a cigar in one hand, a drink in the other, and then I try and fit the club in somewhere. So now, Billy, have you noticed here that this is a golf tournament that Golik's involved with? I know it's not his; he has his own. We'll get to that in just a second. But you and I have never been invited to this golf uh, this golf tournament. You noticed that, right? Well, I mean, we we just met Sonny, but that's yeah. true. Yeah, the, but the Golik one. I mean, I'm kind of wondering that's coming up very quickly fast approaching I haven't heard anything about that you know? and I yeah. wonder if Jim, I wonder if it's a home and home if Jim repays the favor yeah. of you going to his you know this well yeah, yeah I, I've gone to that one for years this first one we're making more of a 
Notre Dame one. Yeah. We're bringing like all the Notre Dame kind of football mm-hmm. players back from the seventies to now. And then I think we're going to expand it out uh, after that. Jim will certainly be invited. He'll be, let me put it this way. He'll be invited way before you guys will. Oh, <laughs> so, come on. I mean, was, just, Jim, was Jim invited to the wedding? Uh, Jim, uh, no, that, that was like one of A those. A bad spot where, I put you in. I'm wow. sorry. Listen, yeah. I, listen, I had nothing to do with it. Shit. I know you did. You think I have any say at all? There was a Jim, you were on the cut line, just so you know, to feel better about it. Okay. And it was Christine who cut, uh, cut you, not Mike. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, like I said, I, the, Chris and Sydney ran the whole thing. Me and Ben, uh, uh, Jim, Sid, uh, Ben is Sydney's husband. We had no say in anything. Nothing. Yeah. Zero. And you know what? I was fine with it. Until I saw the final bill, and then I wasn't so fine with it. <laughs> Goodness. The next chapter, I'll wait till I yeah. get there to bitch about it. Yeah, yeah, uh, you got you got time. Uh, Sony is joining us here to promote his book, Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. And it, it an incredible ride, incredible journey. I will tell you, Mike, this is interesting. When I was a camp counselor back in the early 90s, I had a friend who went to UNC and he told me about this band Hootie and the Blowfish. And now at the time, you had not blown up, Jim, into what it is that you ultimately became. But he said, hey, keep an eye on this band. He started playing me some of their music and it was fantastic. And you were playing mostly Carolina, South, you know, South regional bars at the time, uh, not tremendously big venues. And he said, they're going to blow up and blow up big. And then, Mike, a couple of years later, man, did they blow up. It's the biggest band in the world for 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 a couple of years there. It's an amazing story, Mike. Oh, listen, I, I've been fans of theirs forever and, and, and been fortunate enough now to get to, to know them all. But before I even want to talk to that, Jim, I need to know how your soccer career went at South Carolina. <laughs> ah, it went. Let me tell you. It, <laughs> I I came in the hard way and I, you know, moved 800 miles from Naperville, Illinois right. to to attempt to walk on a Division One soccer school with only a promise of a, a couple days of tryout. So it was uh, not like the best way to plan the rest of your life. But uh, huh. I was blessed and maybe talented enough that they took one walk on that season. It was me. And so they let me come aboard and start out the bottom of about, you know, 20, 25 guys trying to work my way up. And uh, the career started out difficult because the first game I got put in, which was about halfway through the season, 20 minutes into the game, I broke my foot. So it went from struggle to severe disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the next bar down the street. <laughs> uh, how'd you get into soccer? Like at what age were you into soccer? I got lucky. I think we lived in Northern Virginia and I saw it for the first time, but it wasn't until we moved to uh, Northern Illinois and we got exposed to like a community that was very international. And I thought that was so unique and kind of cool that we had gathered all these people to start a new soccer league. I was a kid, uh, third grader, and my parents with these other parents gathered this group together. And here was a, a kind of a white bread little Naperville town. And suddenly there were uh, Germans and uh, Brits and an Iranian guy and uh, just about the whole rainbow of the world gathered to play this soccer thing. And I thought, not only do I love chasing this little ball, I think it's cool as hell, but the, the community that was involved immediately struck me as just brilliant. I wanted to know more about it. And we didn't have access then really to the internet and finding out about it. So it was only through these people's experiences that I got to learn about soccer. I played all sports. I was football, basketball, baseball, tennis, but 
soccer is the one that really, by the time high school hit, I concentrated on. And I had a good knack for it. I was obsessed, so I'd spent a lot of time in it. And yeah, but you realize, but you realize, music was a lot cooler, right? Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it is. It's 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 a lot cooler. You're a rock star, man. Cool. Yes, I would say. Yes. There was a more artistic thing in my heart called, and it was cool music, certainly, and it did a different thing to me. It's soccer was competition, and there is a little, there is creativity, but I also music spoke to me in a different way that was as intriguing i mean we sit there we listen to music as kids and we wonder what draws us to certain music or the look of certain artists i had all that and we didn't again have the internet we just had magazines and albums and posters but i thought this is a cool this is a cool world rock and roll and music and i had parents that had some cool tastes so they were separate there were two lanes sports and soccer or sports and music had their own lanes and they worked they worked perfectly together until they didn't, which was probably my, you know, after soccer in college ended, I was faced with, I have a bad mullet. I wear short shorts. There's no professional <laughs> soccer league. I'm not good enough to make one. Or I could, I could get my drums and get my drums and start <laughs> looking for a band. So it was so, B. So, so about that, see, what I found all through the years is athletes always wanted to be entertainers. I know I did. And entertainers always wanted to be athletes. I mean, my God, Kenny Chesney went and caught punch for every NFL team out there. You know, I mean, and they all want to be. And you got to you were you were both uh, for a bit with the with the sports. But so let me ask you this. Say you were that walk on that blew up and all of a sudden you were the star on the South Carolina soccer team and more opportunities came in the sports world, because you know soccer, man, you could start going international and all that. Say yeah. that blew up. What? I, and this may be an impossible question to answer, but you had to love soccer to do it. What would the, could there at some point had to be maybe a choice the other way there if you were that good in soccer? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of glad I didn't have to make that decision myself. It would have altered the whole course because when I made the decision that my fourth year of USC soccer was my last. Uh, it, it pointed me directly towards music. And that short uh, sort of uh, two-year span between the 87 and joining Hootie the Blowfish would have been altered forever had I not uh, had I stuck with soccer or tried to go some other level or moved away. So it, it worked out the way it was supposed to. Somebody asked me the greatest question the other day on a Facebook Live, which was, would you give up to, to represent your country <laughs> in soccer in a World Cup? Would you give up? all that you've achieved with Hootie. And I didn't know which one it was. Yes. Wow. Yes. Like, Can I answer it for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that is tough. Yeah, it, that is tough. Though. It is tough. Yes. Sports well, Mike, well, Mike, would Mike, would you give up the, the NFL career with the Eagles, uh, Notre Dame football? If you could play in a rock band, would you? If it was a rock band like Hootie and the Blowfish, probably. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I agree but, with you. But, but if if I were, don't don't say me. Listen, I did play nine years, but it was an average career. And listen, I I it went well at Notre Dame and in the NFL. It was cool. But we we used to ask Hall of Famers all the time. Would you give up your Hall of Fame NFL nice. career? Would you give up that bust and that gold jacket to be? to be like win four masters or whatever, or whatever the sport would be. That's a more, that that's a tougher question, you know? So for Jim, it would be, 
you know, winning an Olympic gold or a World Cup or being right. considered one of the great soccer players of all time because they were one of the great bands of all time. So that's more a comparison, and that, that's that's got to be tough. I mean, that 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 that's a tough thing. At least I can take music still at my ripe old age of 57 into my everyday life. I can still perform. I can still write. I can still sing, play drums, play piano. I I have a hard time getting around a full-size soccer field. (laughs) That's a good point. Good point. (laughs) Billy, Billy, you're wondering. uh, Well, go ahead. Ask the question here. So, Mike, you were saying how you uh, athletes want to be entertainers. Entertainers want to be athletes. What kind of entertainer did you think that you had in mind? Oh, I want. Listen, I I got to sing uh, on Darius's country tour. We had a bet when South Carolina women played Notre Dame women in the semis. If if South Carolina won, he would host uh, our the show, uh, Mike and Mike and Mike. And if if Notre Dame won, I got to sing at his concert. And Notre Dame won. So wow. he, and the fans to, lost. Yeah, he had to sing the <laughs> he had to sing the Notre Dame fight song with a Notre Dame jersey on. And then I sang the one stipulation he was, he said, you can't sing any of my songs. I'm like, what the hell is that? Dude? <laughs> so, so Wait, Jim, was he good? I mean, no, no, Jim wasn't there. This, this okay, was Jim wasn't the, there. Okay. Yeah, this, this was with okay. the this okay. was in Indiana somewhere. And I said, well, lucky Jim. I mean, <laughs> I sang Take It Easy by the Eagles. And I remember in the back in the in the backstage before I'm having a few drinks because I needed to have a few of drinks. Of course. Yep. Um, John Mason, who's a bass player in the band said, what, what key are you singing it in? I'm like, what key am I singing it in? I said, I sing it when it comes on the radio. That's how I'm singing it. So, so that, that's kind of what they did. And let me tell you, I mean, listen, I, I played in front of 80, a hundred thousand people, but as, as a team, Jim, I'm telling you, the feeling when you walk out there and they're just looking at you or one of two or three people, and, man, they're just on you when it's your voice or your instrument, it is a rush. And I was so nervous, but once I got started, I just got into the flow. What a ball you guys have to have. And listen, we all know the underbelly. It can be hard work to travel and all that. But, man, that that payoff on stage just looks so fantastic. Uh, Doesn't it make you respect somebody like Darius Rucker a little bit more? I certainly, as somebody who now sings lead and writes his own music, realized when I got up there for the first time, like, oh, this is not as easy as Darius makes it look. (laughs) I sang one national anthem in front of a stadium full of people once, and I will never go back, and they're probably still trying to uh, get the ice uh, frozen back from where the urine melted. It, <laughs> it was the Detroit Red Wings against the uh, new the new Carolina uh, Hurricanes team right. back in the 90s or early 2000s. I can't even remember. I'm trying to forget. It wasn't bad, but the experience right. was difficult. Jim Sony Sonfeld, with a drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish, has a book coming out here, Friends with Golick, Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. It comes out June 28th uh, of this year. Jim, why'd you decide? Let's just start like right here with a book. Why'd you decide to write a book? Uh, I might have got tired of talking about all the stuff that was, I thought was meaningful. <laughs> you might as well get paid for it. <laughs> well, yeah, let's try and write it down. It was my birthday in 2017, October 20th, and I'd been thinking of the idea is can I put this stuff on, on paper that I think is meaningful in my mind at least. And so I started typing that day and spent about three years before I found an editor. And I felt like, you know, not just telling Hootie backstage stories, but for somebody to get a image of what it's like to sit in a seat that only four of us 
we're ever in four members right. of the band, I think it would be valuable and to tell of some of the struggles back there that, that happened or some of the victories that people may not have seen before. I knew that there'd be an audience that would enjoy that, but add in the struggle I ended up having with uh, substance abuse and that journey, you know, down and the sort of uh, redemption at the end of, of coming out of it and, and still being alive and, you know, it, it winds up talking about the Hootie reunion tour we did in 2019. So it's got a nice bow on it. The timing seemed to be right to beginning to start writing a book and then finish it. And miraculously, right before COVID whooped us. So yeah. I got to do most of the story that would end at the end of 2019 when we did that uh, end of that reunion tour. So it's got a nice beginning, middle and end. It's got a nice arc to it. And, uh, you know, it's... I, I just think it's something for everybody, if, whether you're a fan or sports fan or just a little more curious about what happens in a big band. It gives a picture or a glimpse into all those. I mean, and I want to go to the beginning for a second. And for those, I don't know how you couldn't know, but if you don't, Jim, obviously the guys he played with at South Carolina, where did he start with Darius Rucker, Mark Bryan and Dean Felber. So we, we talk about the first. I, I just talked about my first time I saved you talk about the National Anthem. The first time you guys played somewhere, like, for real. You know, I don't know all the different places you played, but where maybe you were getting paid or this was like, okay, th th this shit's for real here. How, if you can remember, how, how did that go and how did you feel when it was over? Well, it was, again, like standing out there singing your first National Anthem or <laughs> – you know, doing anything for the first time and I, and I it's in the book too and it's it's probably what a lot of the band members would say was a moment for them and it was sitting on stage at the Ed Sullivan Theater for David Letterman his late night show because we quickly understood that we're not just signed to a record label we're not just playing in front of a couple thousand people we're being beamed through those little cameras with the red dots on them out to millions of homes and that can change your career. It can change your life. And I, the, the bit for me was that, you know, this was 1994, 30 years earlier uh, than that sat the Beatles. Ringo on his goofy little riser they had him on and the rest of the band there. Now it's 30 years later, 94, and we're sitting up there. And suddenly the normalcy of having played Hold My Hand, the song we performed <laughs> yeah. 500 million times before that went away. The, the, the comfort of, Ah, it's just Darius and Mark and Dean up there went south. All of a sudden, I'm like frozen. Blood is stopped flowing <laughs> to all the meaningful parts of my body. And I'm like, I'm on someone's TV right now. And it doesn't feel great. It changed our lives, but the moment was lost on my nerves, unfortunately. Is that the moment where you guys knew you had made it, though? Was that a moment, defining moment for all of you? It was the hinge. It was where we knew we could yep. either get flung into the stratosphere by this, right. or it could be a great three and a half minutes of fame that you can tell your kids about. And no, I, so I that that was a year I it, the year I retired. I wasn't even playing, and I remember uh, when you got when you guys played that, and I remember what what a I mean the reaction to it was unbelievable, and really started an incredible ascent. I, I there's a lot obviously to fill in the middle, but now I want to I want to ask. So then you go on tour. You guys are this young, hot, incredible band. You go on tour when you're young. And then you went on tour, as you said, in 2019. I was fortunate enough to see you guys that year as well. What were some, outside of age, <laughs> what were some <laughs> of the biggest differences 
of those early touring years outside of maybe some of the obvious ones and that that one in 2019? Oh, comfort level mainly. Obviously, yeah, age and your your body's reaction to traveling and loss of hair, all those obvious things. (laughs) We all go through that, but it was really the comfort level. You know, when we, in 95, things started kicking as a result of Letterman and we got booked for our first amphitheater tour, which is, you know, anywhere from 16 to 26,000 a night. We'd been playing up to that point for a couple thousand people. And we also had no idea how you act on a stage. Suddenly my bandmates were 50 feet away and as opposed to right up snug against me in a club, you used to have a camaraderie and a communication style that was suddenly gone. And we're trying to, uh, you know, associate with these big crowds. Darius didn't really know how to do that per se. Uh, and so it took us an entire summer and then a few years of practice to best navigate. How do you stand on a stage when there's that many people out there and when you're separate from your bandmates and all the, and, and you're wearing shorts. Cause we <laughs> like it was 1994 and we get just, came from the club era so we're wearing shorts and t-shirts like we don't look at all cool or hot and (laughs) so 2019 we're comfortable even if we have no hair and our backs hurt and dean's on a cane from his newly implanted hip it's okay because we feel like we know what the hell we're doing and that's all you really want to feel is comfortable was there a time you thought to yourself you weren't going to make it like what did that look like were there times where you guys were like man what are we doing this is crazy we're never going to make it big yeah, the entire period between 1989 and <laughs> That entire time. You guys, so so this was a wild surprise to you guys. I mean, you went out with the goal of trying to make it into a, you know, trying to be a big big rock and roll band, which you eventually came, but you, you doubted all the way through until you made it? Yeah, we always lacked a little self-confidence. We saw our fan base growing, you know, from 10 to 20 people to 30 to 100 to eventually a couple thousands in, in the markets we were uh, working in mostly, but there's no guarantees. I mean, in, in music at least, and at that time, pre-internet, you might get discovered or you might not. And you always have that lingering feeling over you of like, hey, let's have some damn fun while we're here because this might be the end of it or the height of it. So when Letterman happened and shot us upwards, it relieved that feeling. And it just, I don't know, maybe I'm paranoid. For me, brought in a new feeling, which was, I wonder how long this will last. Right. Because <laughs> Again, the the length of a career at the top and and a pro football player uh, like Mike might be able to uh, help with this idea. There's no guarantee with that either. I mean, five years is the average, right? You went what? How many? Yeah, three years is the average. I went nine, but but yeah, it year to year for at least six of those years, I went in every year just kind of wondering, you know, yeah. are, are are you going to make it? So I can I, I certainly understand, but not the magnitude that what would you guys hit at which was incredible. And I, and I did get to go in and he do that later with Mike and Mike, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that went okay. yeah. Yeah. As far as way in the beginning, beginning, you're coming from Naperville to South Carolina. When had you known Darius Dean or Mark before that, or how did you guys meet? Uh, I got Mark was in a uh, audio production class and it was uh, my last semester of school. So this is 89 and, and uh, I'd heard of this band, Hootie and the Blowfish, around campus because I was in an equally um, 
funny named band called <laughs> Tootie and the Jones. So <laughs> it's my curse. Uh, but, so I kind of knew that there was this other band that sounded like us in name and they were around. But honestly, it wasn't until another sort of moment of uh, providence or something that I was I'd been in an apartment fire and about a dozen of us college kids had been burned out. And a couple nights later, drowning my sorrows, sitting in a little uh, bar in, in Five Points, Columbia, near the campus, hooting the blowfisher on stage. And I don't know them except Mark was in a class of mine. And Mark Bryan stops the entire rabid audience and says, everybody, give me your attention. There's a guy here you may know from this other band named Sony. He's uh, been burned out of his apartment. He doesn't have a toothbrush or a, a kitchen stove. I'm going to pass my hat around. He takes his sweaty ball cap off. I'm sure it said Maryland on the front. Ah. And it came by the time it came around to me, who was just stunned on the side of the stage, there was 35 bucks, which in 1989 was probably like 250 bucks now. And I thought these guys are, they, they have me already. They're cool. They're using their influence on a stage to help somebody for no particular reason, other than it's the right thing to do. And I made a note that I love these guys. And six months later, they asked me to audition. That's so cool. it's, it was, wow. that was me meeting the band. I didn't need to say or shake a hand of Darius or, 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 or Mark or Dean or their old drummer Brantley, because I knew from their action that they were amazing guys. So the fact that we came together uh, really is under that light of guys who like to have fun, play some clubs and do the right thing. Missed opportunity, though, when you guys combine not being Hootie and Tootie or Tootie and the Blowfish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and Tootie and Jones, I mean, they must have been pissed when you left. I mean, yeah. you're right. You're, you're like cheating on them, Jim. I mean, yeah, yeah, did you leave them high and dry? What happened there? <laughs> no, it's, it's still one of my best. Tootie is still one of my best friends in the world. He, they still have his the band, too, because uh, it's a small town, you know, medium-sized campus, and there was enough room for two bands with silly names. And so when I went over to Hootie, it was because they wanted to write music. Hootie was saying, hey, we're going to write original material now. And that's what that's where my heart was. And Tootie uh, were more playing covers, and they were stellar at what they did and still are, but they accepted that I, it was an artistic sort of move that I was uh, switching camps for. So, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong in this, especially when you start out locally, there's a lot that goes into, because I've been in it, the, the windjammer, that when you when you are popular or fill the windjammer, then basically, you know, you're you're ready to move on. When, how, how did that go, that whole process go with the windjammer and filling that? What, a, what an incredible place, by the way. I mean, just a great place to, to, to go play. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's when you're – we kind of went and have to make the choice at some point of – being uh, what was a big fish, no pun intended, in a small pond. Right. South Carolina is not that big. And so we were packing out all the clubs on the coast and in town here. But uh, at some point you have to say, do we, are we content with that? Is that what we're going for? Or are we willing to do something bigger? And while most people from the industry at that time would have told us you need to move to L.A. or New York, that's where bands make it, we thought, I think we can do it from here. We just have to go further so we bought a van and we just traveled our tails off into north carolina virginia uh delaware new york down to florida over to alabama georgia until we were wore out and and that's where we found a bigger audience eventually we got to be a very small fish in a big pond when we put out our first record because nobody knew us from the man on the moon but you kind of at some point need to make the leap and say 
I got to get to the rest of the world if, if I want to be uh, seen by the rest of the world. So we got a little lucky doing that. We had one song that they put on the radio and it wasn't doing well until Letterman put it on his show and that changed everything. But uh, they did like the song and came back for a few more. So <laughs> Jim Sony Sonefeld with us, a drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish has a book coming out, Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing and One Hell of a Ride. What did the top look uh, look like for you, Jim? So you get there, you arrive, you're big stars. Letterman plays your song. You're hearing your home music uh, in your in your car on your car radio, which has to be really, really cool. Um, what did what happened once you got to that level that maybe you didn't expect? What did it look like for you? <laughs> we realized we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you were woefully I mean, unprepared for it, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're there and you have some degree earned it but you were unskilled as to how to keep it. So we spend from 1994 to 2000 figuring out how do we stay here? Is it possible to even stay here? So we put out three albums. We do, we work our tails off the record label. I think eventually realizes they've made enough on crack review. The first one, right. To, that do they even need to push a fourth duty record or so we end up in that weird zone where you're not sure what to do. What do you, where's your career? And it looks great from the top. I mean, believe me that we're all sort of pinched ourselves saying, my gosh, we get to play these big shows. We suddenly had fans or peers who were celebrity musicians, celebrity football players, uh, baseball players, which was the heart of Hootie was sports as well as music. So we got to enjoy a bunch of years just saying we got to meet fill in the blank Mike Golick. We got to meet so and so. Right, but there has to be someone better than Golick. Oh, like, yeah, you have yeah, someone better. Than you me. you got yeah, like, for like, sure. like yeah. yeah, Jim. Yeah. For you, like, give me. A, you're playing alongside somebody, Dave Matthews. I don't know who it is, but you're playing with somebody on stage. Uh, and give me that moment. Like, what the fuck? How did this happen? How am I playing with this person on stage? Was there a person in particular for you or Ben? Yeah, I know exactly who it was because. I did uh, the exact comment you just said what <laughs> I here, and it was Willie Nelson. We got, wow. we went from, you know, peering up at a God called Willie Nelson to being invited to his event called Farm Aid. And so, and we're not just any other band on Farm Aid. We're one of the, the biggest bands in the States in 95 and 96. Then he asked us, do we mind hosting one in our hometown of Columbia, South Carolina? So we're like, what is happening here? And it just, it's beautiful. I mean, you, you, you hope somebody took pictures because it goes fast. You don't have time to take your own pictures. There's nothing to remember it by except for what's in your heart. And so, yeah, Willie Nelson, dude. And and not to mention getting to party a little bit with Willie, which we won't mention on air, but he he likes Why? certain things. It's <laughs> sort of the uh, tradition. You go to Willie's bus and hang out and get yeah. other-minded for a minute. Hey, listen, I mean, he was just, so you know, cool. he just saw the future. It's basically legal everywhere now, so no big deal, right? I mean, what, what the <laughs> heck? That's the way it goes. Yeah, but, Mike, you're playing in bars in South Carolina, North Carolina. All of a sudden, you're Willie's bus. <laughs> I mean, that is that has got to be so cool. But, you know. This book, I'm, as, as you have said, covers a lot of things. So you guys hit that high point. What's it like when it, it's over, when, when the touring's going to stop and there's going to be a breakup? Is, you know, I'm sure all, a lot of them are different, but there is a meeting with everybody. Is, is it, I'm sure it can't all be amicable, amicable all the time, but how did, if you don't mind talking about it, how, how did that go? Oh, uh, it, 
it's not great, and it's a conversation with teammates or bandmates. You yeah. put off as long as possible because who wants to really face it? So it, mid two thousands was rolling around, and didn't really have a record label, and the crowds were shrinking up, of course. And we did have a moment where we decided, uh, as a band, we just need to take a break, which is something that was not in our nature. We always liked making music. We worked whether there were two people or 200,000. And so here we came to a place where we didn't have much support. Um, Darius was uh, thinking he was going to want to put out a country record. I was divorced. I had two little kids and I'm like, we got to do something. So we decided we would go into this like a little dormancy, which was a big challenge for us to, to say, we're not going to tour and we're not going to make a record. And we don't know when we are. That was a very sort of, difficult place for us to land because we had to talk about it and we didn't really know if the royalties from the old records would sustain us for a month, a year or a decade or life. And so we sort of courageously went into that period. The last place we played was uh, this club in California and it, you know, it didn't look great. It was small. There were people that were happy to see us, but I wondered, you know, is this is this how big, big bands end? Is this where the road goes? And mm. but luckily, I'll say this for my bandmates, nobody wanted to like quit. Nobody wanted to break up or say, screw you, I'm doing this on my own. We knew the value called Hootie and the Blowfish. So we had a foundation at the time that we had started. We said, let's keep funding the foundation with charity shows. We're just not going to tour or make records. And, uh, you know, it was it was brave and, and, and difficult, but a crazy thing happened, which was, life wrote the next few chapters for us. Darius put out a country record, which no one really could have presumed would do well, and it killed it. And so Darius was soaring off on a grand country career as we entered that dormancy, and he deserved it and worked his butt off for it. I ended up remarried and uniquely to someone who was very close to our Hootie family, which made things a little awkward for a few years. <laughs> and so that was, uh, she's called Laura. And yeah. We've been married 14 years, but she was married to Mark. So uh, it was like a difficult transition, but looking back, it, it's, you know, it wrote itself and it's all good. We got to tour again. We're still alive and kicking and we'll probably tour another time. Were, were uh, you, were, I'm sorry, sorry. So were, were you, were you, when you guys did the reunion tour, A, was it an uncomfortable get together or was it like a hand back in a glove? And were you guys nervous about how you would be received? <laughs> it was comfortable. We all wanted to put our hand in the glove, but almost, <laughs> it was like the finger uh, was missing. So we were trying to shove our old ways of life and our old memories from how we used to tour into a glove that wasn't quite <laughs> matching up. So we had to redefine that. And it, it, it was fine, actually, you know, uh, we were all in different places. Like I said, I was remarried. Our kids that between Laura and Mark and I and my ex-wife had were grown enough. They were either teenagers or in uh, going off into college. They could appreciate riding around in a tour bus. Uh, Darius was, you know, umpteen hits into his country career dean was getting a new hip mark was <laughs> uh was in a great place too putting out solo music and really eager to get back onto our hootie stage so we just had to sort of re-understand what life in 2019 was supposed to look like and uh we did i think we did it real successfully we saw numbers that 
oh my gosh, we hadn't done since 95. We 20,000, 22, we got to Chicago, my hometown, 24,000 people. And believe me, at the beginning of that tour, you couldn't have convinced a hootie or a blowfish that we would have a giant reception like that. We again lacked the confidence that there was a real fan base still viable out there. I'm not going to lie. I was amazed because Darius even said that to me one time. He's like, I'm a little nervous or not sure about the reception. And I was like, anybody I said that to was like, are they kidding? I mean, they're going to be huge <laughs> wherever they go. And, and sure enough, you guys were, but, but yeah, you, you have tied that theme of kind of the insecurity together and, you know, uh, but boy, you know, I, I, you guys had no problem, like you said, filling it. And I knew, I think so many people knew it was going to be hit except for the four of you. <laughs> right. We're the last to know. And we're thankful we got to do it and, you know, probably hope to do it again. We'll just wait and see how the timing of all of our lives and thank goodness COVID is looking like it's yeah. in the rear view. But, uh, you know, that, that, pandemic crushed a bunch of reunion tours yeah. Yeah. I know bands that were out for their 30th reunion tour that they'd planned for years and it's like uh-uh right uh jim with that kind of success the success that you guys had uh with that success comes temptation and i think this is probably the biggest lesson that readers of the book listeners of this interview fans of yours uh can can learn from you um that temptation uh you caved into some of that temptation can you talk about that a little bit Absolutely. I had probably started falling into it when we were on the upswing and really enjoying seeing the country and the world and and just every bit of, you know, outpouring from the fans and the financial side of it, too. That's great. But it was the downside where I started struggling with, God, is this over? And if it is over, it doesn't feel good. And how am I going to deal with that? And I went back to something I'd learned earlier, but didn't know it, which was Alcohol, drugs always made me feel better. You know, for maybe a normal person, it's working your butt off. And at the end of the week, you pop a few beers and you have an ability to put it down when you're, you know, <laughs> two or three or four or whatever your number is in. But I had this opposite thing that was happening. And I, uh, once I would start, I couldn't turn it off. And so it ended up, and it was a way for, way for me to deal with the reality that our careers were going in a direction that we couldn't control and I wasn't very comfortable with. So I spent from 2001 to the end of four just in a bad place, chasing like to feel better through alcohol, but nothing in our career was feeling better at all. I'd started a family. I had two little kids. My bandmates were worried about me because I kept doing dumb things. I didn't really even, uh, need the alcohol to prove that I was doing dumb things. If you drink too much, you do dumb things anyway. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly surprising, but I would continue to do it and then jump right back in to prove that I didn't have a problem. So I got in this cycle that was just inescapable. And I stayed in it until I get basically sick and tired of it. And right. they were probably about to throw me away anyway. So I uh, escaped being kicked out of my band or my house, which was really lucky. And, I found some help. That was like uh, the end of 2004. Wow. That's uh, I mean, that's got, and I'm sure like we probably know that story is not alone, especially anywhere in the world, but in that business for sure. So, I mean, from start to finish of that, how many, how many years was that to where you were fully out of it and into the recovery mode and, and, and where you wanted to be? Uh, I liked 
the very first time I reached out to ask somebody for help and they took to took me to a group of people who were practicing how to be sober with their method. I loved it. I mean, I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm so thankful. There's actually a solution they're talking about here. Right. I didn't know a solution. The only solution I had was if I drink again, I feel better for a little while until it goes bad or I black out or I do something stupid, shame, guilt, drink again, same cycle. So I was thrilled to have, an answer. And it, it actually did come kind of quick. The idea that I can do this without drugs or alcohol. I, I accepted the idea uh, pretty, pretty readily, I guess. And they were thankful to have me out of a really dark place. Um, and uh, it sort of altered, you know, it's tough. It's, it's one thing I'll say that is a little bit in the book is that when you have four guys that are bonding through their twenties, and 30s and see the world together and live their dreams out and one of them pulls up like i did and says i can't party anymore which means it's going to be difficult for me to hang out and do the things that right. we've grown to know to love with each other it's a it's tough on the team uh, and it, it did become sort of a, a a wrench that was difficult going forward to accept and so uh, we had some years where I, I felt a little left out but i needed to be <laughs> they were graceful enough to not like <laughs> Peer pressure me, which if you're, you've been on a sports team before, you know, peer pressure is just yes. trash talking, you know? And so they didn't do that to me, which was really awesome. I'm so thankful to this day, but it changed. It altered our sort of path a little bit because I had gone down lame. <laughs> Jim, did, write, did writing this book help? I imagine writing this book helped, like just putting it on paper had to help you, right? It helped me. I don't know if it's going to help anybody else. <laughs> yeah, but if it does, I mean, if it helps one person, then, you know, job well yeah, done. Yeah, no, you know? the, the, the path in the book where I you realize as a reader that I've had a big struggle, that I'm, you know, heading towards a certain uh, death or imprisonment or getting kicked out of the band. Uh, when you get there, uh, it's an important thing for readers. And I think there are a lot of readers that will realize, oh, there's an answer. There's a, a way to sort of find you it's never too late it's never if you need help when you're 18 it's never too early either you can ask at any time i didn't want to need help i didn't want to need anybody else i didn't want to say i'm sick but i had one guy in my life at the time who'd give me his phone number who had found a new way and he gave it to me and i'm so thankful for that guy so if i'm that guy for somebody else who's listening or reading the book to say yeah you can have some screwed up thinking and you can be addicted to something and find your way out, then yeah, amen. I'll be that guy uh, as many times as I can. Swimming with a Blowfish, Hootie Healing, and One Hell of a Ride comes out June 28th. Uh, Jim Sonfeld, the drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish, uh, kind enough to spend some time with me and Mike here and Billy on Stupidity. I have my top five drummers of all time. I'll let you go on this note, all right? Oh. I have top five. I, I, I if you want your, you know, if you want to run by your top five soccer players of all time, feel free. Top five <laughs> Eagles of all time, whatever you want. But I have top five drummers of all time. Uh, Billy, why are you making a face? What's the matter? I'm, try I'm trying to figure out if you have Jim at number one or if you left him off your list. I I'm going to be Just honest. Knowing how you work, I'm trying to figure out how you're playing this. <laughs> I left Sony off the list. Not wow. because I don't think he's a great dr drummer. I want his opinion on the other five. Like, of course, he knows. He knows and thinks he's a great drummer. All right. I didn't have you in my top five. You're OLI. You're number six. Okay. Like Mike's, <laughs> like, like Mike's daughter's wedding. You're on the cut line. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you consider yourself a top five drummer of all time? I don't consider myself top five of anything of all time. <laughs> I don't even think I get paid to do. <laughs> okay. 
right, here we go. Number five for me, okay? Underrated drummer here, Phil Collins. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. We're off to a good start. Number four, Keith Moon. Ah, you seem a little, I don't know, overrated? If you include the whole picture, a drummer, his style, his personality, his influence on music after he makes it, he's in there. Okay. Not not personally for his skill, but for all those things because he influenced people. And part of that was insane, crazy, uh, made up nonsense behind the drum kit, but it actually worked. <laughs> it worked out. Right. Exactly. It makes sense. Number three, I think this would be in everyone's top five John Bonham. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. No good. Doubt. Uh, number two is two guys because the band had two drummers. Now uh, you're going to be minute. upset. Yeah. No, it had two drummers. Uh, Bill Kreutzman, Mickey Hart. Grateful Dead. Thank you. Thank you. You're a dead fan, right? Oh, God. Yeah. Stu yes. is a sick, sick fan there. Yes. Yes. That was the problem with my first two years of college is I became a Grateful <laughs> Dead fan. That was the problem with all five years of college for me. Five. <laughs> I said five. That's right. <laughs> Well, how many shows, Jim? Oh, now I found. Oh, no. I, now all I want to do is talk about the dead, right? <laughs> no, not, not important how many shows. It's okay. It is the partying aspect that I saw myself as a, a uh, king in. So Okay, good. Uh, and then number one, I think to me, this is unanimous. I don't know. I'm just such a big fan of his. Neil Pert. Neil Pert. Jeez. I mean, I, in principle, I'm against... <laughs> top anything list when it comes to an art form called rock and roll but i'll participate in this knowing that i'm yes. six okay um neil pert tops and not just for his drumming yeah he's on the top drumming but that man influenced me more lyrically than many maybe any other lyricist that i've ever read as well because he wrote most of the band's lyrics in their popular phase and even the later years but these these are all like neil pert whew, a drummer that highly influenced me, but I cannot do anything like he does. <laughs> uh, no uh, one can, Jim. No one can. <laughs> no, the other guys, I can pull off some some Who and some Dead and some Zeppelin and Phil Collins, but I tell you, it, Neil Peart's on his own plan. If you if you were to kick anyone out, it'd probably be Billy and Mickey. And listen, I'm not even certain they were good. I was just on a lot of LSD. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, can, a, can, it felt good. It sounded good. I, can, I don't know what to tell you. Can we go one older <laughs> jazz drummer and go Buddy Rich? Now, now you're hitting home. He was yeah. like, before, yeah, before I was yeah. exposed to other drummers, I knew he was one of the greatest drummers ever because my dad told me so and let me stay up late one day when I was like 10 and watch the Johnny Carson show because <laughs> Buddy Rich is on it. Yeah. Oh, just fantastic stuff. I have, I have one more to ask you. Just, I, I like asking this to any of you when you play in front of a crowd and just the feeling that you get when you start playing a song and the freaking entire crowd sings it with you. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I get goosebumps when I hear it happen for entertainers. So how it must feel for you guys. Yeah. The first time, in front of a big crowd in 94, 95, when we heard the chorus for uh, Hold My Hand, it scared the hell out of me. I mean, I didn't know if I was having some oral sort of <laughs> something was happening, in a, a, you know, a seizure. Like, why is it so loud? And why is it the chorus of this song? Because I'd never heard it at that volume before. It literally, I almost stopped drumming to see what was wrong. And, <laughs> but yeah, it's someone sings your three notes 
in unison saying, hold my hand, whether it's in Morristown, you go to Ireland where you've never been before and they're singing it. Yeah. You go to uh, the Middle East to play for the troops and they're singing it. It's like, this just doesn't get any weirder and better. That's so cool. Uh, no, I, weirder for me is Jimmy Butler uh, only want to be with you, Mick Ultra commercial. Like, yeah, how about it, huh? <laughs> yeah. How, how the hell did that happen, Jim? Yeah. Do you have any idea? <laughs> uh, do you believe in karma? Maybe that's the only explanation. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. They call me and I say yes really quick. And... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how does that conversation go? They call you and say what? Hey, can we use this song in a Jimmy Butler commercial, Mick Ultra? Yeah, they give you a little brief description to make sure it's not used for something ridiculous or uh, right. unwarranted. But an NBA player? Yeah. On a beer commercial? I mean, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Cool. We're in. How <laughs> yeah. much? Yeah, exactly right. Play it all you want. <laughs> it is an odd pairing, though. Like, did you know Jimmy was a fan? or No, and I, I don't even know if he, he if he is, like, truly or somebody. <laughs> right. Set them up. Here's the line you got to sing. It's this weird band from the '90s, and right. uh, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, it's it gives a little bit of credibility. Something Hootie probably no doubt. lacked a little bit of for being cool. And now you know, in 2021, 22, you've got an NBA star singing your old song. That's just cool. That's sure. very cool. Yeah. Hey, besides Mike Golick, we'll get you out of here on this. Besides Mike Golick, and again, the new book coming out, <laughs> Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride, June 28th, wherever books are sold. Besides Mike Golick, uh, the coolest, like for you, Jim, the athlete you met where you're like, holy shit, man, this guy wants to be at my show watching my concert. Was there Michael Jordan, anyone, someone like that? Oh, my God. I'll just – the athlete that wanted to be – you know who was always a really big one, and he was one of the first ones we met – and he was just so unabashedly sincere and humble about it was Dan Marino. Oh, really? Yeah. I wow. mean, he was thrilled to get in our music video and, and it was nice of him. But even the years that came after that, the guy just loved the fact that we were in a band, that we loved him as an athlete and he was humble and crazy. He could keep up one of the few guys that could actually keep up, up with our nonsense. <laughs> really couldn't. And, and he always just carried himself like, this is pretty cool. And he, you can tell he appreciated the relationship. And uh, yeah, for us, you know, being kids that grew up watching him, it was kind of like, wow, this is pretty insane. I've got a lot of soccer buddies that I've got to meet through the years that I could mention too. But knowing that Dan was at the top, it was just like, that's good. That's a guy who's learned how to carry himself and appreciate life. That's having, very cool. Having met Dan, you have one big game, Jim, that you need to win. You go Marino <laughs> or Montana? Uh, yes, great question. I have to go disappoint my friend Dan, who I just talked so wow. much about. <laughs> you should go Brady off the board. <laughs> well, again, there's got to be somebody, some conversation after Brady and all these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Montana, because I think his his ability in the moment, in the big game – to do the big thing, you just can't deny that sort of track record. Obviously, he got the chance to be there way more often than Dan did. But uh, no, I mean, you look at his look at his record in the big game. He can do it. Yeah. Uh, Jim, I'm thinking here, World Cup expert. Like you join us, we break down the World wow. Cup soccer. What do you think? You want to do that? A little soccer? I'm in. I've, I've been. I spent my 90s traveling around Europe and other places chasing the World Cup and. Secretly stalked Alexi Lalas and all the other great guys from the 90s, and I still do. <laughs> uh, i right. tell you, one quick note on, on the World Cup. How about this lineup around Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving, we have the three NFL games. 
Friday, I believe it's USA versus England in World Cup, and then Saturday is Ohio State, Michigan. That's a weekend of sports, right? That's there. a weekend. I just yeah. hope that my family understands when they can't find me, and I'm yeah. in you know, the country in the <laughs> Middle East that's hosting the World Cup. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's a big weekend. It's insane. I've got some. <laughs> I, I'm in the soccer community enough to know that there's a lot of people bitching and moaning about how in the world a World Cup could take place in that time of the year. Yeah, it's going to be hot. All the domestic seasons yeah. across Europe and the world, and it's just silly. And the guy that sold it to that country in a very illegal move is no longer in FIFA, so he doesn't give a damn. But Are you talking about Sepp Blatter? <laughs> I didn't want to mention names. But hey, a lot of those people in FIFA got rich for He's some of those decisions. And not only that, leave it to Mike to always be thinking about Thanksgiving. And let me tell you something, Mike, no one's watching soccer, okay? Everyone's I'm, oh, hell. <laughs> well, no, no, this is on Friday. No, you're not. It's Friday. There's yeah, no well, one. Mike, no, come you're on. Not, Mike, come Mike, come on. Mike, come oh, on. A, you're frying a bird, I mean. Come U.S. On. against England on Friday? Oh, hell, yeah. There would be a big audience. It gets yes. so many men out of uh, shopping on Friday. Too. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Oh, God, Jim, this was wonderful. Thank you. Good luck with the book again. Uh, Swimming with a Blowfish, Hootie Healing, and What Hell of a Ride. Jim Sony Sonefeld, kind enough to spend uh, some time with his friend, Mike Golick, and, and ho hopefully uh, two new friends, me and Billy, our soccer expert come the World Cup <laughs> over Thanksgiving weekend. We're going to bother yeah. you, Jim. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. So we Thanks, will, son. man. Thanks appreciate so much it, for the time, man. And good luck Thanks, with the man. book. We appreciate you uh, being so candid with us. Thank you all. Stugatz here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot has changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. It was the original light beer, and to this day, it's still the best one. Miller Lite has more of the taste you want and less of the stuff you don't. What I love to do, what me and my friends do, when we're sitting around, we like to enjoy it with ice-cold Miller Lights. Miller Lite keeps it simple, undebatable quality, great taste, only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com stew, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.